0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm taking my watch off to make sure I don't go over time. I'm sure you've all heard the story about the young boy who was in church with his dad, and the minister took the watch off and set it down, and the young fellow asked his dad, Daddy, what does that mean? And his father replied, absolutely nothing. (laughs) (laughs) But since I'm on so early, I better make sure that it means something today, so uh, I'll try and be punctual. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. As we turn to your word now, and as we meditate upon it, we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart might be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, as a boy, it was just science fiction. But what I first saw on Star Trek many years ago has become a reality. Whether it's those high-tech security cameras, or that facial ID on our phones, recognition software is now part of everyday life. Indeed, it's hard not to be recognised by those high-tech cameras, whether we like it or not, as if you've been listening to the news recently about Bunnings and Kmart, you'll know something about. But like all technology, it does have its limitations, and one of these is that it captures only what's on the outside. It can't really reach beyond the surface. It may be able to detect our faces or our fingerprints, but it can't really discern our inner self who we really are. But Jesus highlights how this can be done. He draws attention to how we as Christians can be recognized by those around us. Unlike our Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist neighbors, it's not by our dress code or what we were. It's not by our facial appearance or how we look. It's by what we do and how we behave. What marks us out as Christians is our love. That's the badge of authentic Christian discipleship, according to what Jesus says in John 13. Listen to how he puts it in verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give you, Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, Jesus speaks here of a new command, and yet it may not seem that new at all. Didn't the Lord command the Israelites to love? Of course he did. Indeed, didn't Jesus himself highlight the importance of this in the law and the prophets? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, With all your soul and with all your mind, that's the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So how can Jesus speak here of love as a new command? Well, the answer I suggest is threefold. It's new in that Jesus proposes a new object for our love. It's new in that Jesus prescribes a new measure for our love. And it's new in that Jesus provides a new motive for our love. Put very simply, Jesus tells us here whom we should love, how we should love, and why we should love. And that's what I want us to reflect on for the next few minutes this morning. First of all, the new object of our love. Three times, Jesus speaks here of loving each other. On this occasion, he's not speaking of loving our enemies or of loving our neighbors or of loving people in general. No, he's speaking here about loving our fellow disciples he commands his disciples to love each other. Our common faith needs to be expressed in mutual love. Christian disciples should love each other. Of course, this is not our first or our only love. Loving God and living to please him is what matters most. And Jesus is obviously not denying that here. Jesus isn't emphasizing love for others above love for God. Rather, he's making it clear that one of the ways that we express our love for God is by our love for one another. As the Apostle John writes elsewhere, whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Genuine love for God leads to genuine love for one another. Love for God and sincere love for our fellow Christians are two sides of the same coin. You can't really have one without the other. How can we really love God if we don't love a Christian brother or sister? That's John's point. And he's clearly reflecting in that epistle on this new command of Jesus. This is his command, he writes a chapter back, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. So friends, how are we going with such love? How are we putting this new command into practice in our lives, in the life of our college community? In some respects, I suppose the answer is patently obvious. We donate to the students' mutual assistance fund. We sign up for... Mill rosters: we actively care for each other. We carry one another's burdens. We help those who are struggling or discouraged or getting behind. We do this, and more besides. And thus we might easily assume that this new command isn't really a problem insofar as more college is concerned. But you know what may be? Indeed it is if we place some kind of caveat unshuts, brotherly, or sisterly love. Jesus doesn't qualify this new command by restricting it to those that we like, those that we agree with, those that we respect, those that we get on with. This command to love each other applies just as much to those we find difficult or annoying, those who have grieved us, those who have offended us, those who need our forgiveness. As the Apostle Peter puts it, We must keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. And in his commentary, Grudem unpacks that as follows. He says, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. So let me ask you again, how is such love being expressed in what we say, in what we do? This new command, it puts an obligation on us, a Christian duty to love each other, not so that God will love us in return. No, it's because God loves us that we should love each other. Moreover, we should reflect the same kind of love that God has displayed and shown to us in Jesus. That's the second new aspect of the command that Jesus gives us here, the new measure of our love. As I have loved you, says Jesus, so you must love one another. The old command was to love our neighbor as ourselves, But here the standard is so much higher. We're to love one another as Jesus has loved us his love, that's the new pattern, that's the new standard, that's the new measure. And the wider context here in John's gospel highlights at least three things about Jesus' love. It was unflagging. it was self-effacing, and it was self-denying. It was on-flagging. Turn back with me to the, the start of John 13 and take a look at, at verse 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, it's possible to understand those words to mean to the uttermost, and older editions of the NIV thus read, he now showed them the full extent of his love. But most English versions take the clause in its temporal sense. Jesus loved the disciples to the end, to the very end of his life. In other words, he never stopped loving them. His love was on-flagging, it was persistent, it was enduring, whatever their shortcomings, however many times they got it wrong. No matter how often they failed or disappointed him, and did even after some had denied him, Jesus never gave up, he kept on loving. He continued to demonstrate his love to the very end, his love was on-flagging. How fickle our love can be by comparison, so easily put off, an unintended slur here, a deliberate affront there, some perceived animosity or ingratitude. For whatever reason, our love can so easily be stifled, but not that of Jesus. He loved his disciples to the end, his love was unflagging. Moreover, as the following verses underline, his love was self-effacing. No act of love was too lowly, too menial for Jesus to perform. Here the one who had left the splendor of heaven adopts the role of a servant, a menial slave. He strips off his his outer clothing. He ties a towel around his waist. He pours some water into a basin. He stoops down and he washes his disciples' smelly feet. Well, maybe they weren't that smelly. But still, this was a shocking thing to do. And as usual, Peter just can't contain himself. You're never going to wash my feet. He just blurts out what the rest were probably thinking. You see, this was not something that even peers did for each other. It was surely beneath their Lord and their master, a task that was was reserved for the, the lowest of servants. According to one contemporary Jewish story, when Rabbi Ishmael returned home from the synagogue one day, his mother volunteered to wash his feet. But he absolutely refused. He wouldn't hear of such a thing. Such a task was far too demeaning. But here Jesus reverses normal expectations. He takes on the role of a menial slave. Yes, there was more to this than the physical act of foot washing. It highlights the disciples' need for spiritual cleansing as well. But whatever its deeper symbolic significance, it plainly serves here as a model for Christian conduct. Listen to what Jesus says, or what John says, in verse 12 and following. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Know that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. You also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. What Jesus does here serves as an example for us to follow. If we love each other as Jesus has loved us, our love must be self-effacing. No task, no act of love should be beneath us or too demeaning. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Philippians, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's hard to imagine anything more self-effacing than that. But as those words further remind us, Jesus' love was self-denying. we see that in John's gospel here also. In both the feet-washing incident and the mention of his impending glorification, Jesus alludes to the supreme act of his love. And the practical implications of that love are underlined just a couple of chapters later. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. This is the model. This is the standard that we must follow. As John puts it in his epistle, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But as John points out in that epistle, such self-denying love may require a lot less than the sacrifice of our lives. He writes, if anyone has material possessions, and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This love we're talking about, it may not cost us our lives, but it will cost us something, whether it's money or time or energy or whatever else we can offer our brethren in Christ. As I have loved you, says Jesus, so you must love each other it's an immeasurably high standard and surely it's one that none of us can reflect consistently or perfectly i still remember the first time that i preached on these verses as a theology student i think it was in my second year and i was preaching in my home church and i had waxed eloquent about loving one another and following the model that jesus had set for us but after the service was over one of the congregations tore strips off me on her way out she'd been unable to hear nearly everything I said, and that was obvious. But her problem wasn't with my Irish accent. She had one too. It wasn't even with the content of the sermon. It was the fact that I'd embarrassed her about an hour or so earlier. You see, at exactly 11 o'clock, I'd stood up to begin the service, only to realize to my horror that the organist wasn't in her seat. And so, as a novice, I thought, well, what well, I do? I'll just sit down and wait. So I sat down and waited. And a few minutes later, uh, the organist came in and took her seat. And so I stood up again and rather foolishly announced, well, folks, I think we're ready to start this time. I hadn't intended it as a criticism or as a slur, but this lady had been deeply offended. Unfortunately, neither of us had acted very lovingly that day. And I'm sure all of us have had similar experiences from time to time. We don't always manage to love each other as we should. But, however faulty our love might be in comparison to that of Jesus, such love should be demonstrated in the life of every Christian disciple, as Don Carson puts it, by an unbreakable chain, love for God is tied to and verified by love for other believers. By an unbreakable chain, love for God is tied to and verified by love for other believers. And that brings us thirdly to the new motive of our love, why we should love. Some Christians wear a little cross around their necks. Others pin the symbol of a fish onto their lapels. Some display a Christian sticker on their vehicles. But all these things are of little value if our lives are not demonstrating Christ's love in our hearts. As this verse makes clear, love is the true badge of authentic discipleship. It's by love for one another that we can make the greatest impression on the world around us. It's by such love that our neighbors will realize that the church is more than just a religious social club. It's by our mutual love that the church can be recognized as a living organism, the very body of Christ. So the challenge of this verse is very obvious. It's as if Jesus turns to the world around us and says, "'Judge for yourselves if these are my followers.'" See for yourselves whether this person is one of my disciples. Nowadays, we have so many evangelistic strategies. But here's one that is certain to make people stop and think. Here's one with genuine persuasive power. By this says Jesus, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another." If you've done church history, as most of you have. You know that according to Tertullian, it was the mutual love expressed by the early Christians that most impressed their pagan neighbors. See, the persecutors say, see how these Christians love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. Unfortunately, within 200 years, Chrysostom was to complain. Even now, there is nothing else that causes the heathen to stumble except that there is no love. Their own doctrines they have long condemned, and now they admire ours, but they are hindered by our mode of life. We wonder why it is that Christianity is making so little impact in our modern Western world. And we can point to all the usual suspects post modernity, an increasingly secular society, new atheism, militant anti Christian sentiment, and all the rest friends, brothers and sisters, perhaps part of the problem lies right with ourselves. We claim to be disciples of the Lord Jesus, yet our behavior can contradict our beliefs. Instead of love, there's discord and strife, envy and jealousy, bitterness and resentment, tribalism and animosity. It ought not to be like this according to what Jesus says here. As his disciples were commanded to love one another. Indeed, we're enabled by His Spirit to do so, to demonstrate to those around us that God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Here we have instant recognition software for authentic Christianity. Love for God expressed in love for one another. So when outsiders come into our midst, when visitors are present in our church or college fellowship, when they examine our lives and our interactions with one another, What conclusions will they draw? That there's some sort of software or hardware malfunction? Hopefully not. Or that we truly are who we say we are, followers of one whose love is so amazing and so divine it demands my life, my soul, my all.